Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part two of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. I do have one uh, thought that uh, regarding that. Your next door neighbor, Morgan City, with its new mayor, and he's very good. How do you overcome Morgan City's presence when you're right next to, uh, when they're right next to you in terms of growth? I never thought of it like that. Uh, uh, our community is what they call a bedroom community. Uh, all the main businesses are to the east of us. And our area had plenty of land to build homes, while whereas Morgan City was pretty much landlocked. There's nothing else to you can't buy a property there because it's not available. And so all the expansion was this way, and our uh, like I said, our families would buy just tracts of land from developer and build out houses on it. So actually, I've worked, I've worked for almost 15 years right back there building houses. So my drive to work every day was about a minute to drive to work for the last 15 years. Right. Because yeah. your it's city right. right next door, Morgan City, has all the industries and businesses and commerce. Yes. And so it's, I'm, I'm just thinking that it makes it difficult for people in Patterson to develop commerce when you got a, a, a larger footprint in, in you know, right next door. I mean, literally five minutes from your town. So that's I right. think that's a big challenge. Yes, it is. But I have faith that you and the mayor will uh, overcome that. It may just be a matter of time. But, um, I, I want to say it's keeping me, it's keeping me entertained doing this. Uh, I have a very short attention span. Remember I told you I'd do seven things in seven years. Well, to get the building office up to speed, where it's at now, took me about a month. You know, just getting uh, all the documents in order, in order, as well as getting all the software in place. Now I was on autopilot. I, I was in France for three weeks shooting a movie. And it was a time differential. Uh, business opens in Patterson at seven, at a, at nine in the morning. So that puts it opening at 4 p.m. in France. So I start answering phone calls from 4 p.m. till midnight. What a man. Yeah. That's, that's serious dedication. And if I were resident of Patterson, Louisiana, I would appreciate a civil servant like you. Well, thank you. Um, it, it, this sort of kind of answers, you've already kind of answered it, but I just wanted to make sure you, you I want you to put it in your own words. You are city of, uh, inspector now, but what prepared you for that role, you think, from the mayor's office that they called you to become the next city inspector? What were your qualifications from their perspective that made right. you ready to go? That's good. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a third generation contractor. My grandfather, my father, and I was a contractor, licensed contractors. And then, like I said, in 1998 and 2000, I started getting into building codes and I became uh, president of the Building Code Association for Louisiana, the Building Official Association of Louisiana. Then I became president of the International Code Council for the Southeast Region, which is Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, and Alabama. I was hey. So I was a contractor being president of the of those uh, councils, which generally is reserved only for inspectors. All that right? is impressive, my man. Yeah. 
And then while I was doing that, I was tapped by the governor to, to be on the Uniform Construction Code Council for the state of Louisiana. So I sat on that council and I was in charge of the, the gas and plumbing uh, committee that did that. Then I was a Home Bill Association president. And then I was a Kiwanis president, Rotary president, and church council president. So I, was, I know wore kind of hats in leadership positions. And it helped. All these things helped me work better with people. You know, because, if, you know, at first I was all gung-ho about things shall be this way. And things should shall be that way. But, <laughs> but you can say it two ways. You can say, Damn it, you shall do this. Or you're like, hey, look, let's go and do it like this. It's more safe. And they always say yes. But when you say you shall do this, uh, they'll be like, yeah, right. You can kiss my butt. I'm out of here, you know. Yeah. So you think that that qualified you from the city's perspective to be a uh, inspector? Yes, sir. Yeah. But you actually knew the codes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I helped write them. <laughs> See, the- <laughs> That, yeah. that answered my question. So uh, even though it may appear like, you know, when, when people say, yeah, that, that bans an overnight success. Well, it took seven years to get to that point. So in your case, you became an overnight city inspector. But in the end, you were 20, doing all these 20, 21 years to, to get that. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So and the crazy it, thing is I wanted it at one time. I, I, want, I applied for the position back in 2007 or 2008. And they told me no because I was a contractor and it could have been a conflict of interest. So when I wanted it, they told me no. But when I didn't want it, they told me yes. There you yeah. go. But in the end, you were utterly qualified to be city inspectors. It wasn't like city uh, of Patterson just decided, well, you know, because you put us on Facebook, we'll just uh, kind of fluff it over by giving you a job, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? This is going to lead to another uh, uh, aspect of your life. All right. And you kind of mentioned it at the end uh, in terms of your style of leadership. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your family background now, uh, which kind of led you to all these uh, situations in terms of your pers- personality and your, your professional background and that sort of thing. Now, broadly speaking, and then I want you to jump in, you come from a large family. You have 10 siblings, Right. And yes, it could have been 15 siblings, but five of them or so had stillbirth and they did make it. Yes, sir. Otherwise, you could have been, and you're the oldest of 10, potentially oldest of 15. Yes, Now, how, how does that impact someone's life when you're the oldest child of 10 siblings in this uh, world? You know, that's a, that's a quite insightful question there. And uh, when you're the oldest of all those siblings, you get to you get to go through the learning curve of your parents learning how to be parents for the first time. So the so the oldest kid always gets the gets it the hardest, and the youngest kid has it the easiest because they've learned through trial and error what you shall and shall not do to make the children give you the result that you're wanting. All right, I have nine children right now. My oldest child, I was super rough on. The, the the youngest one, who's now 11, she has it like a piece of cake because I know how to train her properly where she don't have to worry about getting in trouble because I was I set it up where she could do what was right without having to do corporal punishment or whatever it was. You no, know, there's not much fussing going on. 
because I just trained her right. Yeah, let's go back to your, your, your parents now. How did they raise you? And because you're the oldest, how did, I mean, how, give us a background as to, as to what the dynamics were at the time in terms of your father's value, your mother's value, and his family value. Do we have to talk about this? Huh? I mean, I think your father did a great job of raising it. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying to see where the question is going. That's what. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I just want to know. You think uh, being the oldest of 11 children more than who you are today? Okay, I, okay. Now I understand. Cause I, was, I was trying to. I thought you were talking about philosophy or something of, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah just being, okay. being the oldest of this, such a large family. Yeah. Things okay, don't happen yeah. by accident. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, things don't happen by accident. And what was right. it about your family's values that, in other words, your parents' value that produced you as you are today? Thanks. Uh, yeah, um, my dad was pretty conservative. That's when my mother, my dad didn't spend money frivolously. My mom was always home with us. Like I said earlier, my dad retired when he was 42 and I was in high school. So he was always with us. And he put us through the school of hard knocks. And you might have heard of that before. Uh, when I was graduating from high school, I had got a, a scholarship to a local university. And I said, hey, dad, can I get $75 for my dorm deposit? He says, man, you know what a job is? I'm like, yeah. He goes, go get you one. <laughs> Pay your own dorm deposit. And I was like, oh, okay, here goes. You know, and they went to college, you know. But there's, but there's something that that my dad sent us in a letter when we split our companies up. Because, you know, we're all getting older. So we had all of our assets together, tied together at the bank so we could borrow more money and do more things. He split it all up amongst us. And he says, all of you are receiving equal portions of the assets of our company. Although some of y'all have received immensely more than others. And my younger brothers are like, what in the hell are you talking about, man? We all got the same amount of money. What you got more than me? And I said, I got this and the gray hair. And they're like, what you, man, whatever, you know. And they kind of brushed it off. Well, when it comes time for them to, you know, to start doing their financing and doing their their, uh, their paperwork and documents and keeping track of things, they, they, they learned real quick what I got and they did not get. Now, when you were growing up, being the oldest, uh, did you have the responsibility of, help raise your siblings? Yes, sir. Yeah, it, it wasn't in a big way because I was a male and my dad had me mostly like cutting grass, taking care of maintenance on the apartments and the houses. And uh, we, uh, we were, at that time we had video games. So we'd be out there moving video games around from town to town and checking the money and doing all the maintenance stuff they had us doing. So I wasn't really hands-on with the kids. Plus, I was a sanguine personality, so I was always cutting up. You know, I wouldn't mind giving the kids whiskey at night to put them to bed. You know, that's how <laughs> I roll. But then I had a sister who was really, she was uh, very uh, melancholic. You know, she would have, it shall be this way. It is 830. Y'all shall go to bed now. You know, and then uh, she was all like that. And, you know, she's, she's now a nun. She's a mother superior. But, oh, yeah, man. she... Yeah, she took care of all the kids doing all that. Then as I got older, we had so many kids that the other kids were raising the other children, you know, and helping mom around the house. Right. Yeah. I guess it sounds like when you were young, you worked a lot. Or you yes, were raised sir. to, you know, be busy. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
when you look back on your life and you're a father now, do you agree with your father's uh, method of raising kids? To keep oh, definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah. So what, oh, 100%. When you look back on it, what was his rationale in your mind to keep, to keep you working and, and just keep you busy? What's his rationale? One, uh, his dad was super poor. You know, he always walked, his dad, my grandfather always walked to, uh, walked to work. He never owned a car. And my dad's from the wrong side of the track up in Eunice, Louisiana. And when he moved here, he married Mrs. Patterson, Miss Patterson, excuse me. M-I-S says Miss Patterson. He married and uh, got a good job in the oil field and was making some money. So he left being broke wrong side of the track and Eunice came here to start a new life. All right. Must have. I mean, he must have done very well because you said he retired when he was 42. Yes, sir. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's hard to do even now, much less back then. What, what was his uh, economic base that he could retire at 42? Well, he had a he had $80,000 come in from his retirement through his company, Halliburton Services. And then he had a bunch of real estate. So he'd been investing all the years in real estate. He had a couple of apartment complexes. Uh, and then whenever I got old enough to start driving and working, we started building houses again. And he used that money to, from his retirement to seed the, uh, the company. So he was hardcore businessman, entrepreneur. He was kind. All right. But he was also uh, straight it up. OK, hold on. Check this out. Can I have the checkbook, William? Sure, Dad. Pizza Hut, $13. <laughs> McDonald's, $8. Son, uh, what is this? <laughs> Do we have the receipts for this? It must be nice to spend all the money and <laughs> instead of, yeah, let me tell you what, real quick, don't use company checkbook for food. <laughs> don't do that. No, he was business, you know. But then he's charitable, too. He would he always gave 10% of the money. So if we sold the house, you know, okay, we cleared $50,000, uh, write a check out 5000 to the church. Wow. Wow. So you yeah. really learned a lot from yeah. growing up with under him. Yeah. The other thing he did was we would get them solicitations in the mail from people needing money for this or that. You know, I, I call it junk man. Yeah. So I, when I was doing the bills, I started getting these bills. And I'm like, dad, what's this here? He goes, Oh, just send them a hundred dollars. I'm like, are you for real? They're just going to keep sending you the American money. He goes, I hey, don't worry about it. So I went and made my own, so the solicitation letter, poor, starving, Cajun kids of America. And so I had a whole thing of like how these poor kids were starving. Got a picture of my kids on there eating soggy Cheerios and Fruit Loop. <laughs> uh, he called me and told me that the address was wrong because he got it back in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what up? <laughs> Listen, as the oldest of uh, 11 siblings, what was the biggest lesson you learned? Oh, the biggest lesson I learned was don't make my sister mad because she'll rat you out. <laughs> Always cover yourself. <laughs> you think uh, being the oldest of 11 helped you in your business as a city official, as a music producer, and as a, a film production person? Yes, yeah, sir. Teach you how to negotiate with people, especially when they don't want to listen. You ever try to, can you, can you imagine trying to convince my brother Christian to do something that he don't want to do whenever he was a teenager, you know, you know how he is. He's hard head. Yeah. You, I can't convince him now, much less whenever he was 16. 
Yeah, yeah, he had to learn your negotiating skills real well. Okay, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Anyway, I, I'm I'm just impressed when any family has that many uh, siblings. Okay. And I, I just want to let you guys know, listen, if you did not watch the earlier or the later video with Christian Gill, that's my brother, got to check it out. It's an awesome interview. And you'll see why I said that. That guy's hard. He has hard to see, man. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, public service announcements from William yes. Gill. <laughs> just let you know that. Right. So anyway, so uh, it always impressed me when, you know, when a, an individual comes from such a large family and I've always wondered about the psychology of, you know, the, the siblings within that dynamic. So that's the reason why I had to ask you about it. Uh, right. So thanks for answering. And, and we will be right back after this important message. As with the others, this podcast is available to be seen on video. Next, we're going to cover something that you also enjoy doing. And that is, you have a FEMA contract. And that's an interesting gig. So yes, tell sir. us what that's all about and give us some background information, how ended up, you ended up in Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah, I'm a FEMA contractor. I work for different companies, and we're issued a FEMA contractor card, which is very difficult to get. It took me a couple of years to get mine. Unless you know the right people, then it's easy. But I don't know the right people. Anyway, what is it? What is a FEMA contract, for example? Yeah, well, a, a FEMA contract, for example, FEMA will call and say we need company X to go over here to where it flooded in South Louisiana and inspect all these people's houses. FEMA don't send their people out. They hire a contractor to go out there and take care of the jobs for them. So I, I, that's what I do. It's kind of work I do. So they'll call me and say, we need to do this job. Well, we need you for a couple of months, and I'll go do it. It's pretty exciting. You get to see amazing things. You get to see some devastation. You meet some pretty cool people. And I'm, a, I'm all about that. It's like being on vacation, but you're working. So what, what, was, what was your incentive to say, hey, you know, I'm going to be a FEMA contractor? Uh, it was fun. <laughs> that's okay, the incentive. Okay. It's like, hey, you, you want to go to Houston and just flooded down there, had a hurricane. You want to go out there in the tore up area? Hell yeah, I want to go have an adventure. And what do you do? So let's say you go to Houston. What do you like? What do you offer as a FEMA contract? Oh well, uh, uh, we were doing housing inspections. You know, we're going to inspect people's houses for damages after the hurricanes. And then in Puerto Rico, we were going out to Maria to uh, check for uh, damages to the homes. Then went back to St. Thomas for a year to rebuild people's homes after Maria. So, yeah, that kind of stuff. I'll do with housing. So you went to St. Thomas Island? Yes, sir. In St. Croix, in St. John. And that's a hard job, I'm sure. <laughs> Dude, let me tell you, man, my tan was better. My tan looked good. You know, I was about 10 pounds lighter. I was snorkeling a lot. Yeah, well, it, it, it's work, and, you you know, it's pretty devastating out there, but it's also how you look at it. You can go there and say, man, it's bad out here, or you can say it's an adventure. Let me make the best of the situation that I'm given here, and you can make every single thing you do a joyful thing, and that's what I choose to do. It's like the Army. It's all about attitude, huh? Yes, sir. So give us an example. When you went to Puerto Rico recently, what was it like, and what did you do? 
Well, the first time I went there, right after Hurricane Maria, we were doing housing inspections in Guaynabo and then in Lattice and San Sebastian and Tuato. And we're going to individuals' homes and inspecting the damage for the hurricane. Uh, many people's houses were just totally flattened out. Uh, people were losing livelihood because all the coffee plants were destroyed. The banana plants were destroyed. They couldn't work because there was nothing to harvest. And people was in a bad situation. And there was no Wi-Fi, no electricity, uh, no water sometimes. And so you were straight up roughing it. Uh, you were four by four in it a lot of places in the country because there was no roads. There was landslides everywhere. And the, uh, the word from FEMA was, we know it's bad out there. Don't complain. Just go out and do it. So we went and did it. So suck it up. Yeah, suck it up. And then I really enjoyed it. It was great. Okay. How, I mean, do they give you food? Or, I mean, if there's a, there, if there are no roads, if there's a mudslide or whatever, how do, you get the, how do you get your food or water? Well, generally in the morning, we pick up MREs from the ship or wherever we're at. And we carry some in the car to give the people if they needed them. We, you know, we, we carry water, MREs, and tarpaulins. And snacks for the little children. So we go out there, we see somebody in need, we give it to them, and then we do all the inspections that were required. And if there was, if if the road was washed out, you find a way around. If there wasn't, you would just tell them it's not accessible because it's not safe, and you wouldn't do it. So what's your uh, when you were in Puerto Rico? How long were you there? I was there for three three months the first time, then six eight months second time. I mean that's yeah. a serious commitment, right? But it was bad. But, you know, I was able to come back and forth to the house, you know, because I I told my, uh, you know, the company I'm working with, uh, I told them, I said, I got gigs lined up in between that I booked a year out and I can't miss them. Wow. So you're actually able to, in your head, maintain your other life at the same time when you're physically and geographically a thousand miles away. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, sir. Yeah, because if they would have told me you can't go, I'd have been like, I don't need you to play me for my plane home. I'm going home anyway. I'm just kiss. <laughs> okay, uh, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> just how it is. That's how it is. When you go yeah. to some of these islands and you see the devastation, I mean, you realize what poor it is. Poor, right? Yes. You don't. I mean, Americans generally don't realize what poor it is until they go to a third third world country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're totally spoiled here. Yeah. When you see truly poor. And then you experience what, you know, across the pond. I mean, what are some of your thoughts that you have as you're observing these uh, tragic situations? Well, I, I had to go work on some people's house. and They live in little shacks that should have been. Well, our shed in the backyard is better than their whole house. All right. Uh, you can go, go to Los Balos shed. Yeah, that's that, that'd be a palace for these people. And they just live hand to mouth and try their best to make it now make do. Then we come here and hear people complain about no air condition or the, whatever there is. Oh, my fan's not blowing. Like, man, over there, if you would even have the walls for a house, you're doing something. And over here, we get three meals a day. Drink right. water. Right? Yeah. Yeah, like in Puerto Rico, uh, in San Thomas, they get their water from the cisterns. So everybody wants to have gutters on their house because if there's no gutters, you don't get any water. And water's expensive. Yeah. You know, and like, yeah, sometimes uh, some of the islands, the power go off middle of the night because the generator would run out of gas. So we had to wait till the generator, sh- I mean, the, the gas boat shows up and puts gas in the generator. It's always something. And here we're yeah. just so spoiled. Everything works. 
When you're a FEMA contractor, does it make you appreciate certain things about life that you have? I never thought about that. I really don't have an answer for that. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. We'll cover our last subject topic today, which is that you are a genuine man of faith. And in today's contemporary society, you know, you've, you've, you've run into some, but you are a devout uh, religious person. And I want to cover that a little bit. You're right. a Roman Catholic and you are practicing Catholic. Yes, sir. So how does everything that we talked about today see through the uh, eyes of your faith, you know, impact your life? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, I was going to be, I went to the seminary for a little while because I thought I was being called to be a priest. And uh, while I was there, we went on an excursion. And I looked out the window next to the bus, and there was a red car with two blonde-haired chicks in there. You know, and just being from South Louisiana, I said, hey, guys, check out 9 o'clock in the red car. And all the men, all the people in the seminary looked out the car. I mean, looked out and saw this super, two super hot blonde-haired chicks. And immediately I got a call from the superior saying, uh, if you want to be a priest, that's cool, but we're not here to check out girls. He said, if you don't, if you want to look at girls, get on the next plane home. So I did. I went home and uh, I got married with like six months later. I found my wife, remembered her for 30 years now. She's pretty cool. But, uh, but how does it affect my life? Is that uh, this uh, being a Christian or being a Catholic, uh, we have something called the Bible and got like these rules in there called 10 commandments. All right. And, you know, the church usually gives it like additional suggestions that go along with those 10 rules and i look at it like here's the rules of the road if you drive off the cliff you're going to get hurt well the bible puts these little rules up to don't do this it's not good so therefore it kind of points you in the right direction uh, many of my friends would say something like oh i don't believe in all that bible stuff I'm like well how many times have you gotten in trouble in your life and those the trouble you got into is because you, I, I didn't do one of them rules. They're like, yeah, you're right. Pretty much all of them. It's like, yeah, okay. Well, the rules count then. Yeah, it works. So as far as a man of faith, yeah, I believe in this and you got to do what's right. And it's kind of weird to even ask that question because I never even considered it because it's just how I was raised and that's, that, that's inside of here. You know, I, I, I don't even think about that. It's just part of who I am. It seems like uh, your faith obviously uh, impacts who you are on a day-to-day basis to the point that it's actually a subconscious process. That's correct. You are who you are. Now, you failed as a potential future seminarian at that time, but you have not failed as a practicing Catholic. From your perspective, <laughs> at your age, you're in your mid-50s, what would you say is the state of uh, Roman Catholicism today in general? Okay, that's an interesting question. I've been asked that quite a few times by people who are not Catholics and some of my Catholic friends. They're like, what do you think about the Pope? What do you think about this? I said, as a Catholic, I believe in the Eucharist is the a, is a body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. And I am Catholic because I believe in that. But the Pope can say whatever he wants to say. If you don't change any rules of the church, he can say whatever he wants. I'm here for the Eucharist. And that's all. You know, if you want... You know, that's just how I look at it. You think in general, 
Catholics or Christians, both. You think uh, faith is growing or actually decreasing? I think it's decreasing. I think it is. What is your thought as to why? I think uh, secular humanism has a lot to do with it. You know, define that for people that may not understand what secular humanism means. Secular humanism, from my understanding, is we be start thinking that everything around us is God, and take our take our mind off the eternal and thinking about what's here. You know that we're gods. You know, it's the ends with us. We're the end all. At least that's my estimation. What a I know I could be wrong, but that's what, that's what I understand. Yeah, so you're saying uh, secular humanism essentially is anthropomorphism of God's characteristics, defining God in the human terms and limiting it that way, defining God in human terms. Now, faith is important to your family because out of 11, 10 siblings, 11 children and 10 siblings that you have, one of them is actually a nun and has been for decades. Yes, sir. So we're not just talking about uh, going to church on Sundays. I mean, this is something that's serious with the Guild family. Well, hold on. Okay, now that's where we've got to talk about that. You know, being in love with God and having faith is not a group. My sister became a nun, and she has her own walk with God. And when she moves on into eternity... God's not going to say, well, you, you have all these people around you, therefore you get this. No, it's each person's on their own journey. All right. So my sister has a relationship with God that's different than mine. That's different than yours. We all got our own journey. And it does kind of keep us in line knowing that we have, we have to do what's right because we got a sister who's doing this. We don't want to embarrass her by doing something wrong. And I like that. That's, I, I go along with that. Right. I guess all I'm saying is that uh, for your family, Roman Catholicism is no joke because one of your siblings is actually a nun. You know, that's correct. Yes. devoted her life to the church. Yes, sir. And that's very significant. You know, it's not something that you, someone does during during weekends. It's, like, it's not like being a weekend warrior. You know? Yes, I think she's been for 35 years or something like that. Yes. It's been a minute. Let's talk about your sister a little bit. Let's introduce your sister a little bit and what, what uh, she is and what she has done and that sort of thing. Did Christian cover this yet? Uh, not much, but I'd like for you to cover it because it's part of uh, you being okay. uh, your faith. All right. Yeah, well, my sister, Andrea, who is now Mother Mary Agnes, she has a, a group of nuns called the Servica Doors. they up in, I think, Wisconsin or Michigan. Michigan, Madison. Anyway, she's up there. She's doing real well there. She was at uh, EWTN at the Shrine of the Blessed Sacrament. That's kind of synonymous in two names. She was there for 30, 30, 30 odd years in there or something like that. And then uh, she she received dispensation to start her own order. So she went, she's there now. She was in Alabama for for a long time too, right? Yeah, she was. She helped Mother Angelica with a lot of stuff. I think she was a nurse for a little while. Yeah, too. and and uh, she has gained a lot of some respect that she has the permission to start her own order, which is very significant. Yes, sir. So uh, we wish her the best. Yeah. All right. Now, 
So William Gill, what's next on the radar, man? Next on radars. I hope to go to North Carolina and visit my friend Augustus. That would be cool. <laughs> I got I got a phone call yesterday to go to Memphis to go shoot some new music videos. I have a lot shooting? going on. Uh, shooting? I'm shooting I'm shooting a band called Shotgun Billies. They have this song that I really, really like. So I called and said, I like that song. I want to shoot. He goes, Well, come on up, boy. I said, Well, so we're lining things up right now to get that shot. I'll be working on rezoning the city that I'm living in. So I'm working on getting those out. All that stuff taken care of. Designing a swim pool for the backyard, and designing another three thousand square foot of building to put back there for my guests. I'm writing a book right now. I'm working on some new music. Uh, uh, I don't know what else got going on. Something else, but anyway, yeah, it, it could go on and on. You got a lot going on. What you, what kind of book you're writing? I'm writing. A, I'm writing the unauthorized, the unauthorized life and times of William Gill. <laughs> what inspired that well i got some stories i want to tell so i decided to write that stuff down and then i got a uh, mom gave me a shoe box of pictures i'm like what's all this crap what am i doing with this you know because she gave me a shoe box of her pictures i don't even know who the people are so i'm i'm scanning all these pictures writing writing all about them and put them in the book all right well yeah. I would like to get an autographed copy of that when that no, is available. Not at all. It's not available. It's for all family. Right. It's for, <laughs> it's for, thanks for your offer. <laughs> so it's classified book, huh? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's probably about 200 pages when I'm done with it. And it's going to be mostly pictures and stuff. So if you're not in the family, it really wouldn't matter to you. So unless you have a need to know, it's not available to the public. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that's funny. All right. I'll give you one last chance for closing comments. Oh, I'm done. I think I talked about everybody I want to talk about, but thank you. <laughs> All right. With that profound uh, note there, we thank uh, William Gill for sharing your life with us. And as always on the Fry It Up podcast, uh, I wish your life journey to be one of peace and health. This is Augustus Cho, over and out. <laughs>